is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And we love telling your stories, too. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And this next story, well, our own Alex Cortez brings us the wild adventure story of a woman named Carrie Morgridge. Here's Carrie. I grew up poor, but I grew up at the beach in Santa Barbara. So you know what's free? Going to the beach every day. So on the weekends, my parents played horseshoes with their friends and I learned how to body surf. I learned how to swim in the Pacific Ocean. And this was back in the day when the oil rigs weren't regulated. So I'd come home totally tarred out. I had tar all over my body. And my mom, young mom, used paint thinner on my skin to get the tar off because we didn't know any better. <laughs> so my love immediately was from my parents always wanting to be outdoorsy. In 2015, I had back surgery and I'm a girl who's done nine Ironman. When I had back surgery, I couldn't live that life anymore. So my appetite didn't seem to go away because when you're an active athlete like me, you can eat a lot <laughs> and not really worry about it. So my appetite didn't go away and I had just put on some weight and my muscles had changed. So I asked my husband if I could go to fat camp and John said, give me 24 hours. And so John discovered how to bike across the country, going north to south on a mountain bike, crossing the Continental Divide 36 times and climbing almost 200,000 vertical. 200,000 vertical is like hiking Mount Everest seven times. I was up for the challenge. Called the Great Mountain Divide Bike Route, it's a 3,083.8 mile off-road bike route between Banff, Canada and Antelope Wells, New Mexico that's along the Continental Divide. The divide in the Rocky Mountains where water starts to flow west to the Pacific Ocean and starts to flow east to the Atlantic. A route that these 50-somethings, Carrie and John, hope to conquer. On day one, we had mapped out 60 miles, and it didn't sound that rough. We didn't know quite know how to read the elevation maps quite yet. John will tell you, oh, I had it, and I knew, I just didn't want to tell you. <laughs> but we were literally in the Canadian mountain Rockies, you know, going up, going down, going up, going down. So, you know, you go up at three miles an hour, and you go down, obviously not super fast, because I have 95 pounds of gear on me. So it's not like you can whiz down on a typical mountain bike ride. It was pouring rain the second part of the day. When we did get to that lodge, I mean, I was soaked to the bone. And I'm sure when they saw us come in, they're like, oh, hell no. No, no, not, not a biker. Because she didn't even have to look at her computer and she said, oh, ma'am, I'm so sorry, we're full. You're going to have to get your wet my building. <laughs> so the first night we camped. And camping means a whole hour of setup after an already long day. 
It's like when you run the New York City Marathon, you actually have to walk a full hour to get back and get out of the bins and the cages that they put you in to find your people to get back to your hotel room. It takes literally about an hour. And so, you know, here you run a three, four or five hour race and then tack on another hour to walk all the way back to your hotel. That's what it was like every day. And I was on the Great Divide mountain bike route like 10, 12 hours a day. We look back on that day also as a sign. It would have changed the whole trip. Thank God we didn't get in to that awesome place because our mindset and our mind growth and our growth together, it bonded us right from day one. It, it changed us. And I think that's why camping is so important to do with your children. I can't stress enough how important camping is. Malcolm Gladwell, one of my favorite authors of all time, and it might be in one of his books, what did Navy SEALs have in common? And he went through everything, like was it their birth date? Was it a uh, uh, stable family? What gave him the tenacity? And he came back, the last question that I would have never thought to have asked this was camping. So all of our Navy SEALs, the one thing they have in common is they grew up camping. Pretty interesting statistic, right? I think camping gets you out of your comfort zone. You have to work, you have to chop wood and you have to build your fire and you know, you may not have all the luxuries. And then also, you know that you can sustain yourself. You know that you have something in you to make it through life, make it through the day, make it through the night on your own. I think there's something really powerful about that. It only took us four days to bike through Canada and then we were on to the very first American city is called Eureka, Montana. It's kind of where the border patrol is. It's about 110 degrees that day and we are about to leave Canada and a, a gentleman stops us along our way. So where are you from? And John and I say, oh, we're from the U.S. And he's like, I got to warn you, when you get over to that side, watch out, there's a bunch of rednecks who live in Eureka. They have guns. You should be careful. Oh, and they're Republican rednecks with guns. <laughs> and, you know, you're not knowing who you're talking to, so we don't want to cause a scuff. And you just kind of take it. And as we're leaving, John's like, I think I'm a redneck. I just don't have a gun. <laughs> because our necks had gotten sunburned. We were totally rednecks. <laughs> and when we come back, we'll continue with Carrie Morgridge's adventure story. And my goodness, 3,083 miles of off-road biking. And by the way, not anywhere, the Continental Divide. I couldn't handle it in flatland on 70-degree weather with a nice breeze. When we come back, more Carrie Mortgage's epic adventure here on Our American Story.
continue with our American stories and Carrie Morgridge's story of biking the Great Mountain Divide bike route, a 3,000-plus mile off-road bike route that's along the Continental Divide. Carrie and her husband, John, are now leaving Canada, and they're about to enter the United States. So this was really fun, too. So John and I have to stand in the Canadian auto line to get through our border patrol. And so as we're doing that, John the whole time had carried his American flag. But in honor of being in Canada, he did not put on his American flag, which I really respect. He said he really wanted to wait till he got to America. So as we were waiting in the automobile line, he whipped out his American flag and he rode the rest of the Great Divide route with his American flag on the front of his bicycle, always waving. As we passed into Eureka, um, it changed because of the patriotism just on the other side of the border. There was no town. It was on a backcountry fire road or a backcountry road that was not paved. And big farms with either sheep or cattle, always a few horses, always a few dogs, always a trampoline, either in the front yard or the backyard, always a broken down car, broken down tractor, but then always American painted mailbox, always a flagpole, and then always, you know, the pallets, those were painted symbolizing a flag. Those were abundant as we were riding down the route. And I thought, how awesome is that? Because there's about a thousand people a year that do the Great Divide mountain bike route. And many of them are foreigners. So coming into America from Canada, you're leaving the beauty of Canada. Canada, the Canadian Rockies are spectacular. But you're also coming into America just filled with patriotism, filled with kind people. So the first few days was, okay, we did 60 miles the next day. Okay, well maybe we can do 65 miles. Okay, maybe we could do 70 miles. We just kept pushing ourselves harder and harder. And that's finally when I got to the breaking point by about the sixth day, I was like, is this fun? Are you kidding me? And I almost started to cry because I was so not having fun anymore. I was pretty broken. And John, recognized that I just wasn't going to make it and his number one goal was to make it so he did a reset and said okay we want to finish it and the only way to finish it is to kind of slow our jets down a little bit and not be in this competitive racing mode but to be in it for the long haul and it, it was he sacrificed his personal goals maybe it was to finish in 40 days so he reset his goals for me and that was one of the acts of kindness that I talk about that being unplugged, I started to realize all the things that John does for me on a daily basis. I'm gonna deviate a little bit because this is what happened to Bridget last night. So my girlfriend, Dr. Bridget Coglin, she is CEO of the Shed Aquarium. She is one of my closest friends. I just love her to death. Last night when she arrived, I said, get on your swimsuit, we're gonna go swimming. And we went swimming in the Atlantic Ocean and it took about an hour, you know, to suit up and ride our bicycles over and go swimming. When we got out, she said, thank you. She's like, you just gave me a reset. I went from doing all this to do's and gotta get back to you and all these follow-ups to putting everything in perspective 
of what, what do I need to do to move my organization forward. And if you can just find that in your life and have simple little resets now and again, I think we would all be better because you and I live a very fast paced life. And so really having those reset moments that can happen with a simple swim or a simple beach walk or a simple, you know, so always, always, always since the Great Divide Mountain Bike Route, take time for yourself. And on day 13, their day would end in a town called Lima, Montana at an ExxonMobil gas station where time sought to stop. So the day that we hit ExxonMobil, John bonked. And what happened was um, we, sh we should have stopped and go for a swim and a reset in one of the tide pools, but we didn't because it was a nice downhill. And we regretted it. And we talked about it. We talked about, okay, should we bike back? And every time we got a mile further down, <laughs> we wanted to go two miles back up. Um, we got onto the paved freeway and it was incredibly hot and we didn't do the swim and we were dying of thirst and John refused to drink his hot water. So we had run out of cold water and all we had left was hot water. So we were sipping on hot water for hydration, which is absolutely miserable when it's 110 degrees outside and there's no shade and there's no tree anywhere. So we pull into this Exxon Mobil and we immediately go to the ice box where there are Gatorades and John and I honestly down two Gatorades right before we even make the counter. Observing everything, John has seen an old chair and he said, I know that chair has a story. And so as we go to check out and we're buying all kinds of silly food that we can possibly fill our bodies with, John asked the gentleman at the counter, he said, there has to be a story to this chair. And he said, thank you for asking. That was my father's chair. And as my dad got older, he would come sit with me every day in the ExxonMobil. And then he said, you know, dad passed six months ago and I can't, I can't move his chair. It's like if I remove him, I'm removing my father. So it's his way of seeing his dad every day. But I think what the spirit of the trail does for you is you take that extra minute to figure out what, what is that chair's story. And it, and it was really sentimental and really touching. And John and I almost left in tears because we could feel the love of how much he loved his dad and we could visualize the two of them there. He was not gonna remove that chair, nor should he. We were going through Wyoming. They were laying high fiber all the way through Wyoming. So back roads of nowhere. If you, once you start to bike across the country, or even if you think about it in your car, if you drive across the country, you're out of a big city in 30 minutes. And then you're, you're back into wilderness and wildlife and just nature. And this part of Wyoming, it had a beautiful stream, but not a lot of trees. So it was pretty darn hot. And our hotel room was occupied but not being paid for by the fiber optics company that was hiring the contractors to lay the fiber. And so they had two pizzas going in our kitchen <laughs> when we pulled in. 
And there was other things there. We didn't, we didn't want to touch it. We just wanted a bed and a cold shower and some air conditioning. That's all, that's all we wanted. So we got to see them at the end of the night, at the end of the shift. So imagine coming back, working with the same guys all day long in hot, sweaty, you know, hard, con I would call those hard conditions. It, it was brutally hot. And then imagine going to a small hotel, same guys, having a pizza and a soda pop, and then calling it a night, because it's a physically laborious job. And when we were biking the next day, we saw and watched how hard these contractors were working but how our country is based on their hard work, right? That fiber optics is going to fuel, a, a, connect a school. Those fiber optics are going to change possibly the Exxon, maybe how they bank or transfer money or something. So what those gentlemen were doing out there is directly impacting our country and we could feel it and see it. And so we were really great. We had a lot of gratitude. So I'm really, really grateful for all of our people in our country that don't sit behind a desk, that do use their hands, that do drive a truck. It's all important. And these workers are away from their families. For the whole summer, because that was a summer job. I'm sure they have to become part family. You know, you spend that much time with somebody and you just kind of become part family. Listening to Carrie talk about that moment, that spirit of travel and taking that extra minute. She's so right, there are chairs everywhere if you just take the time. And you get off, well, if you get off the main highways and get on the blue highways. I've traveled across this great country six times and always as often as possible, not on the major interstates. And it has been such a blessing. And for all those who travel outside the country but haven't really seen their own, I'd urge everyone to try it. Take that extra week, couple of weeks or that extra week and get off the road. Stay away from the big cities. They're great, but it's what's in between the big cities and the, and the big suburban towns that often is most interesting about this country. When we come back, more of Carrie Mordridge's story a terrific adventure story here on Our American Stories. And we're back with Our American Stories in the final portion of Carrie Mortgage's adventure story of biking the Great Mountain Divide bike route, a 3,000-plus-mile off-road route that's along the Continental Divide. Let's return to Carrie. I don't want to talk about that part. Really? Yeah. I just had asked Carrie about their friend Mark joining them on the trail. Okay, I'll tell you the positive things. Um... We asked a ton of our athletic friends to join us, not one taker, except for our Floridian friend, who we found out, of course, had asthma. So he already knew he possibly couldn't make it because of his childhood onset asthma. 
So when we hooked up with Mark, the first thing we did was a huge prayer circle ring together. And it was a beautiful prayer. Mark asked God to show mercy on him as he tests his mind, spirit, and body. That was a common prayer every day for me. (laughs) And again, I didn't know about his asthma until we climbed a really big hill and Mark said, I can't breathe. And I'm like, I just thought he was kind of pulling my leg or like, you know, a lot of us can over-exaggerate sometimes. So I wasn't sure which one was happening. And then he's like, no, seriously, I can't, I can't breathe. And I'm like, oh, we're in trouble. So husband John had biked ahead to get him more cold soda and hoping that some ice and some things would help. But he ended up in the ER and his doctor said, listen, if you're feeling this chest pain and you can't go any further, you do need to stop. And so um, in Breckenridge, we started to climb and Breckenridge uh, has some of the tallest peaks in the state of Colorado. And so we were about to head over towards one of the highest peaks on the Great Divide mountain bike route. And Mark's lungs just wouldn't let him get there. And he, you know, prayed to God and he asked his family for, you know, if they could hang in there for him. And um, Jody, his wife, immediately flew out. And they ended up having a great weekend and spending a beautiful weekend in Breckenridge and, and was honestly looking at real estate like loved it so much. So he got the meds he needed to from the right doctor at the right place at the right time. And he gave us his blessing to go on. So that morning we prayed and said, God's going to guide us. And Mark said, I just want you to know I'm not holding you back. If I can't make it, you have to go on. And that was our pact with each other. Carrie wrote in the spirit of the trail, the sprint is over. Mark is choosing the marathon of life for his wife and children. John had always been worried about my safety and especially the unknown of getting to New Mexico and closer to the Mexican border. So we haven't spent much time on the Mexican border. So I had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. So when we got out of the city, and we were crossing, there's an underpass of Highway 10. And most people have driven Highway 10 some part in their life, you know, the southernmost route, east to west. There's a freeway that you can actually mountain bike underneath that freeway. And we ended up at a trading post. And at the trading post, we walked in and the women were phenomenal. So one of the things that we don't talk about a lot is how good people are. And in, this, in our experience, Every human we encountered was unbelievably supportive and unbelievably kind. We walk in and the women see us walk in in our bike gear and they're like, welcome to the trading post. The bathrooms are in the back. (laughs) They knew what we wanted. So we immediately went to the bathroom. Then again, this is New Mexico and it's the middle, it's in September. So it is super hot, like unbelievably hot. It's between 95 and 100 degrees. So we are in dire need of ice and a cold Gatorade. When we get to the counter, I told the women our concern about where we, where we should stay. And they're like, oh, our friend Jim at the community center will open it up for you for a small donation. 
And I'm like, you've got to be kidding. So John's like, call him, call him, call him, call him, call him. John kept chomping at the bit, like, you know, call that guy, call that guy. And I'm like, I'm going to have my sandwich. Just chill. We're going to be fine. He was like, no, no, no. You need to call him. You need to call him. You need to call him. So finally I'm like, fine, I'll call the guy. So I call the guy and he's like, of course I'll open it up for you. And John just has a total meltdown. He's crying. I didn't realize the stress he had carried for the 3,000 miles about our safety. We're only 40 miles from finishing. We're only 40 miles from the Mexican border. And John was that concerned about my safety. And it was just such a huge relief. And so right then and there, another act of kindness miraculously happened for us. And a gentleman who we don't know went out of his way to go into town and open up the community center so John and I would have a safe place to sleep. So sometimes I can be naive, call it whatever you want. But when we got to the Mexican border, I wanted my passport stamped. I had carried my passport all the way from Canada, all the way down. So Obama had built this incredible like $25 million passport, fancy United States building, totally gussied up. We kind of go through that area and we enter Mexico and there are two Hispanic men with armed machine guns with a folding table, two broken white lounge chairs, and a covered roof, a uh, little tarp. And they looked at us like, you're kidding, right? And he just said, how far are you going? I'm like, oh, this is it. And he's kind of like, go back to the US. <laughs> go, go away. <laughs> you're annoying. So we, so we literally enter Mexico and they tell us to go home, <laughs> so we do. And we have our bikes and we're coming back into the US Border Patrol. Here's this $20 million fancy building. And I stop and wait and I wait and I wait and finally I get off my bike and I go like bang on the window like, hello, hello. <laughs> and he's like, may I help you? And I'm like, yeah, we're entering the United States. So you wanna see my passport? And he said, ma'am, that's for airports. We're border patrol. How long have you been in Mexico? And I said, oh, about five minutes. And he, he just looked at me like, oh my God, you are wasting my time. You are such a moron. <laughs> we had never been so in love in our 25 years of marriage as we were as finishing this race. And it was just amazing. And what a terrific story and what a storyteller. And you've been listening to Carrie Mortgage's story of biking the Great Mountain Divide bike route. And we're talking about 3,000 plus miles. And my goodness, not ordinary terrain. I remember not too long ago going to a, to a wedding. I was best man at a friend's wedding in, of all places, Aspen. And my wife and I decided to drive up over the pass. I was exhausted driving over the big pass. It was so scary being up that high, so I can't imagine biking it. Take an adventure like this with your family. She's so right about camping or just taking a big, long road trip with the family. I remember mine with my dad visiting Civil War battlefields all over the country, leaving from New Jersey, Gettysburg, Shiloh, and of course, all the way down to Vicksburg in the end with just a map and some time. 
and all kinds of things happening in between. Good, some bad, couple of arguments, a lot of bonding. It's never perfect, but my goodness, it's worth it. And take an epic road trip if you can. Send stories of your best road trips, by the way. OurAmericanNetwork.org. And by the way, Carrie's terrific adventure book, The Spirit of the Trail, is available at Amazon. That's The Spirit of the Trail. Carrie Mortgage's story, in a way, her husband John's too, here on Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and now we bring you the story of a Frenchman of, well, let's just say epic proportions, who had a major influence on the world of American entertainment. Here's Jesse. This is the story of a giant. If you're old enough to recognize the theme music here, you probably know exactly who we're talking about. The most famous giant in modern times, also known as the eighth wonder of the world, Andre the Giant stood at seven feet, four inches tall, and weighed over 500 pounds. Now, his height is actually debated, but I'll go with the bigger numbers because he deserves it, and that's the numbers his own website quoted. He was undefeated in the world of pro wrestling from 1973 to 1987 and held the title of the WWF World Heavyweight Champion of the World. Now, we all know that pro wrestling is just for fun, right? But trust me, you wouldn't want to get thrown across the ring or sat on by this guy. Live to my left, the one and the only Andre the Giant and Andre the wrestling fans indeed, the general public all over the entire world welcome the opportunity to see you in person. Thank you very much, and I really appreciate that. And you say I'm traveling all over the world, entire world, and I'm very happy traveling all over the world, and very happy to see all those people, all different people, and all different countries. A world-famous wrestler, Andre the Giant was also an actor in films like The Princess Bride. Beat it, or I'll call the Brute Squad. I'm on the Brute Squad. Born Andre Rasimov in France, his parents and four other siblings were all of pretty normal size. He suffered from a disease known as giantism, which gave him an overabundance of growth hormones, which made his body continue to grow through his entire life. He was six foot three and 208 pounds by the time he was 12 years old. Here's Andre's brother, Jacques, talking about growing up with Andre on the farm. My parents were very cool. We had a lot of freedom. Of course, we had to work a lot because at that time we didn't have a lot of money. So on Thursdays with my brother, we had to cut wood to heat the house. And that was a good way to pass the time. My brother really started to grow when he reached 16. Yeah, when he was 16. He was kind of a curiosity. Of course, everybody looked at him. They turned their heads as he passed. He was very strong, that's for sure. We had a flat tire in the back, and we didn't have a jack, so I unscrewed all the lug nuts, except for one. Suddenly, he lifted the car, and I would take the spare tire, and we wouldn't need a jack anymore. That's when we could tell he was strong. 
Being so big wasn't very easy for young Andre. In fact, he was too big to fit on the school bus by this age, and his parents couldn't afford a car to get him to and from school. Luckily, Andre had a kind neighbor with a truck that would help him get back and forth to school. This kind neighbor just happened to be Nobel Prize winner and esteemed playwright Samuel Beckett. Andre dropped out of school after the 8th grade because he didn't really think he would need an education to work on his father's farm. Eventually, his sheer size and weight caught the eye of a local wrestling promoter who convinced him to move to Paris at the age of 17. He was taught professional wrestling back when guys actually wrestled without all the stage antics like we see in the world of pro wrestling today. But it wasn't easy. Nobody wanted to wrestle the giant. He didn't know his own strength and it was hard to find an opponent willing to take him on. But he gradually made a name for himself and he toured all over the world as a spectacle in the sport until he was hired by Vince McMahon Sr., founder of the World Wrestling Federation. Known at the time as the WWF, which went on to become WWE. Little disclaimer here, I don't watch this stuff anymore. I sure liked it when I was a kid. Andre the Giant was the best. He soon became an international celebrity, and people would drive for miles just to see him in action. On March 26, 1973, Andre the Giant debuted as WWF fan favorite, defeating Buddy Wolf in New York's Madison Square Garden. Fast forward to 1987, and he was wrestling Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania 3 in Pontiac, Michigan. There were 93,173 people in the crowd that night, the largest recorded attendance of a live indoor event in North America at the time, a record that would stand until 1999 when Pope John Paul II visited St. Louis. Here's Hulk Hogan. Andre is a superstar. He was the biggest and greatest superstar this business has ever known and ever will know. I mean, he was Andre the Giant. He's the one that laid the groundwork for Hulk Hogan, for Stone Cold Steve Austin, for The Rock, for anybody else that walks through those, these doors of the WWE Universe, it wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for Andre the Giant. You know, and, and to know him as a superstar and the Giant, I remember when I was a fan, I used to watch him, and he would just put his hand on the top rope and lean over the top rope when he was in his prime, and I would just look at his hip and his leg hanging off the ring. It looked like a Clydesdale. You know, it was bigger than anything I'd ever seen, and never dreamed I'd be friends with him or ever get to meet him, but, you know, to fast forward to, you know, him being the greatest of all time, and as a person, what he went through, because if I would walk behind him in the airport, I would hear, oh my gosh, did you see that guy, or a lot of very unkind things were said, you know, and he could hear him, and, and for him to walk through and be as kind of a person as he was and as gentle of a person. Because if he would have been a mean person, there would have been none of us around. There would have been, talk about the guy that never got pinned, that would have been the guy. By most accounts, Andre was a jovial giant, content to play cards, socialize, and enjoy all the food and drink his success afforded him. During matches, he amused himself by stepping on an opponent's long hair or wringing out the sweat from his singlet into their face. In one bout, Jake the Snake Roberts recalled that Andre waited until Roberts was on the mat as he squatted down and unleashed his flatulence. According to Roberts, this went on for 30 seconds because giants fart for extremely long periods of time. Aside from wrestling, Andre the Giant landed several roles in the movies. Most notably, he played Fazik in The Princess Bride. Here's co-producer of that unforgettable film, Rob Reiner. Andre was a great guy, very smart, but Andre liked to drink. Andre liked a little drink. One day he comes to work and I said, Andre, 
what did you do last night? And he says, uh, I went to the bar, had a couple of drinks. I said, well, what do you drink? He says, uh, three bottles of cognac, six bottles of wine. I said, Andre, do you, get, you must have been drunk. He said, no, I don't, I don't get drunk. A little tipsy, but no. So now the day we're supposed to shoot, the ending of the movie, which we shot and didn't use, because we have, you know, Peter Falk saying, as you wish. We had the little boy, after Peter Falk leaves, he leaves through the book, and he starts, you know, reliving it. And then we had the four heroes on the four white horses. He looks out the window, and he sees them, and he waves to them. So we had these four white horses, and we had Andre. We had to, you know, he's 500 pounds, so there's no horse that could support him. So we had to figure out a way to lift, you know, lower him from the ceiling on, like, cables, and... Uh, that day, the Nouveau Beaujolais came out, and he started drinking about 9 o'clock. He drank, like, I'm not exaggerating, like 20 bottles of Nouveau Beaujolais. And I'm now at the end of a day. It's 8 o'clock at night. I'm walking to the end of Shepard and Studios. It's kind of a misty rain, and they open the, the, the doors of the stage, and there comes from the ceiling a 500-pound drunken giant. And he's waving at me, and he's going, hello, boss, like this. And I'm thinking, what do I do for a living? Andre the Giant's drinking habits were legendary. Reports say that he could drink anywhere from 100 to 200 beers in one sitting, and it wouldn't even give him a buzz. Wrestling promoter Arnold Scotland remembers one particular night at a bar with Andre the Giant. One night he was in a bar in uh, Montreal, and he's guys come up and they were bothering him, you know, hey, you're not, you're big, but you're not strong. And Andre said, look, I just come in here to drink. I don't want to, you know, no problems or anything. Well, these guys kept on, on him. They were, you know, feeling pretty good. Andre couldn't take it any longer. He finally got up and he went for him. They ran out and their car was parked on a, on a sidewalk right in front of the place. They jumped in the car and locked it. And Andre ran around to the side of the driver's side, trying to open the door. He couldn't. And, uh, he got so mad, he reached down, he grabbed the car, and he turned it upside down on the sidewalk with the four guys in it. Now, Andre was able to leave the scene before police arrived to find an upturned car with four drunk hooligans inside. Imagine trying to explain to a cop that a giant had just tipped over their car. And this wasn't the only time. Andre would frequently move his friends' cars into positions that were impossible to get out of, like between two trees or sideways in their driveway. His hands were so large you could fit a silver dollar through one of his rings. Forget playing the piano or dialing a phone. The fingers you have used to dial are too fat. To obtain a special dialing wand, please mash the keypad with your palm now. Andre the Giant could easily walk into a restaurant and eat 12 steaks and 15 lobsters in one sitting. But being 7 foot tall with a fluctuating weight around 450 to 550 pounds, life was never easy. Tim White was Andre's friend and personal handler. You just got to be in his shoes for a second to understand what he went through day in, day out. He couldn't hide from anybody. Wherever he went, he was public. People swarmed to him. Uh, when he got into a hotel room, the bed was too small. The shower came up to his waistline. His fingers were too big to dial the phone. I mean, the guy went through heck every day. And not once did he ever complain. Sometimes he wasn't private in his room because people would chase you up the elevator and find out what room and call your room all night. We've had it. We used to have to check out a hotel sometimes because it got to be too much. It was incredible to me, the patience that he had. 
Sadly, over the years, the effects of his medical condition had continued to wear down his body. Eventually, his immense size was just too much for his heart, and Andre the Giant died in Paris in his hotel room on January 27, 1993. His body was flown back to the United States where his remains were cremated and scattered on his ranch in North Carolina. The ashes weighed 17 pounds. He was 46 years old when he died, and doctors told him he wouldn't live past 40. Though professionally, Andre will always be remembered as the eighth wonder of the world. He's known and loved by fans across the globe as the Gentle Giant. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Six years, Jesse James has led this outlaw band, picking his way on a thoroughbred grade through the trails of this southern land with a gun in his hand. And we're listening to Charlie Daniels singing Riding with Jesse James from the 1980 country music concept album The Legend of Jesse James. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And after a century and a half, Jesse James remains one of the most iconic and romanticized figures in American history. Many people even see Jesse James as a type of Robin Hood or a folk hero, despite his sometimes murderous ways. Although separating fact from fiction can be quite a task, we brought in America's best storyteller of the Old West. Roger McGrath is the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. Here's McGrath. The great American poet, Carl Sandburg, said... Jesse James is the only American bandit who is classical, who is to this country what Robin Hood or Dick Turpin is to England, whose exploits are so close to the mythical and apocryphal. Well, most biographers of Jesse James would agree with Sandberg's description. They portray James as dashing, courageous, and romantic. And he certainly was all of those things. However, it can also be ruthless, cunning, and deadly. Most of all, though, he was extraordinarily good at what he did, rob banks and trains. For 16 years, Jesse James rode and robbed and went unapprehended. When his end did come, it came not at the hands of a lawman, but at the hands of a traitor in his own gang. Jesse James was born in 1847 in Clay County, at the far western edge of Missouri, an area known as Little Dixie. He is the second son of Robert and Zerelda James. Their older son, Frank James, is born in 1843. The father, Robert James, is a Baptist minister. Here's Civil War historian Harry Jones. Robert James, he's selected by a group of men there who want to go out west to California. And he's the chaplain on this expedition to go out gold mining. Jesse's a very young child at this time, and his father dies in California. Jesse's mother, and now widow, Zerelda James, is a fierce southern woman. She remarries twice after Robert's death, 
and continues to manage her late husband's 300-acre hemp farm and seven slaves. Here's historian David Eisenbach. Zerelda raised both of her sons uh, to not only uh, be for the institution of slavery, but to fight for it and to commit crimes in the name of the cause. Her second marriage lasts no more than a few months before that husband leaves also. Then in 1855, she marries Dr. Reuben Samuel, who spends most of his time farming rather than practicing medicine. He's quiet and reserved. Zerelda is stormy and assertive. It proves a good match, and they have four children together. But life in Missouri in the 1850s is hardly stable. The question of slavery is ripping apart the American frontier. When Jesse is just nine, the Kansas-Missouri border war erupts. During the five years of bloody war that follow, everybody on the border is forced to take sides. In 1854, the institution of slavery is being challenged in the nation's capital. The Nebraska Territory on Missouri's border is ready to become a state. Democratic Senator Stephen Douglas believes that the majority of citizens in a territory should decide the issue of slavery for themselves. Douglas proposes splitting the territory into Kansas and Nebraska and have the residents in each area vote for a slave state or a free state. The Kansas-Nebraska Act leaves the decision on whether a new territory would be slave or free to the voters. This bill will triumph. It will impart peace to the country and stability to the Union. No opposition to this act leads to the formation of the Republican Party and its first presidential candidate, John C. Fremont, in 1856. Well, nonetheless, the Kansas-Nebraska Act passes, which means slavery could possibly expand into new areas. This ignites a firestorm, and Kansas becomes a battleground as free soil proponents rush in from the north and slavery advocates rush in from Missouri. Western Missouri becomes a staging ground for pro-slavery Southerners and are pejoratively called bushwhackers. Free soil farmers from the north are called jayhawkers. Kansas becomes bleeding Kansas. Could be said, the Civil War starts in Kansas in the late 1850s. On the James family farm, Zerelda is busy shaping her boys to be the next generation of pro-Confederate fighters. Here's Jesse James historian, Michael Gooch. She was not a wallflower by any means, very vocal, very outspoken. Don't you take anything from those Yankees, you hear me? It's every man's responsibility to hold on to what they've got. Over the next six years, the James family farm transforms into a Confederate stronghold. On April 12, 1861, the South fires on Fort Sumter and the Civil War formally begins. Frank James is immediately plunged into battle, fighting for the militia in the Confederate Army. But Union troops rout the Confederate forces in Missouri and then occupy Clay County. Here's T.J. Stiles, Andrew Nelson, and Civil War historian Christopher Phillips. 
the local militia forces began to raid the homes of those suspected of assisting the insurgents and partisans in Clay County. And the war quickly took on this savage counterinsurgency guerrilla warfare conflict that can be some of the most savage warfare of all. The southern sympathizers in this area could easily be taken out, lynched in their own yards. Their houses were burned on a regular basis, livestock confiscated by the Union authorities, and it became an eye for an eye. It was so bad that uh, one Union commander actually ordered the depopulation of four entire counties of western Missouri. Everyone had to leave, and then their homes were burned. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story of Jesse James and, of course, pre-Civil War America. This is Our American Stories. Young Jesse don't know much, but he's learning fast. Ain't seen a man take to it like young Jesse has. And we're listening to Johnny Cash singing Six Guns Shooting. When we last left off with the inevitable approaching Civil War, Jesse James' brother Frank has joined a southern guerrilla band of bushwhackers, and the James family's hotly contested border state of Missouri is being flooded by both Union and Confederate sympathizers. Let's return to Roger McGrath. Here on Our American Stories, we continue with the story of Jesse James. Here's Jesse James biographer, Dan Marcoux. Union militia in the area started looking for these bushwhackers. Zeralda had told everyone that Frank was one of them. 15-year-old Jesse is out plowing in a field when northern soldiers come looking for Frank. Go for your brother, Frank. I don't know where he is. I believe you do, you little rebel son. They hang Frank's respected stepfather, Dr. Reuben Samuel, to a tree. Ruben! Right in front of Zerelda and Jesse. Until Reuben finally gives up Frank's location. It's this violent experience that will push Jesse to join his brother in the spring of 1864. To be treated like the Jameses were treated, demanded that vengeance be taken, or you could not hold your head up as a man. In Missouri, vengeance is best got riding with one of the dozens of Confederate guerrilla bands. In the company of these men, who operate outside the rules of war, Jesse James will be schooled in the art of ambushing, violence, and terror. There are no papers to sign, no uniforms, no government-issue firearms. Jesse simply follows creeks and hog trails into the darkness of the Missouri woods where the Confederate guerrillas make camp. Most notorious leader of these Confederate guerrilla bands is Quantrill's Raiders, commanded by William Quantrill. Here's Mark Gardner, author of Shot All to Hell, Jesse James, The Northfield Raid, and the Wild West's greatest escape. Quantrill's raiders were guerrilla fighters fighting for the South. 
they didn't necessarily fight in traditional ways, and the way they fought could often be very savage, very violent, and their targets could be civilians as well as military. By 1863, Frank James is riding with Quantrell, and a year later, so too is 17-year-old Jesse. Quantrell's band raid, loot, burn, and kill. Their main targets are the railroads, the lifeblood of the Union advance. One of Quantrell's lieutenants, Bloody Bill Anderson, said of Jesse, not to have any beard, he is the keenest and cleanest fighter in the command. Well, during the summer of 1864, Jesse is shot in the chest. But within a month, he's back in the saddle. And he participates in a train hijacking led by Bloody Bill at Centralia, Missouri. Instead of capturing supplies, they find something even more valuable. Here's Civil War historian Donald Frazier. This train has aboard a number of Union forces and home guards that are on their way home. And they're unarmed. They really pose no threat, but they've now fallen to Bloody Bill Anderson and his band. All you Yankees are gonna die like dogs! Bloody Bill's guerrillas kill four civilians and 22 Union soldiers. Bloody Bill wasn't afraid to send a message. That could be pretty brutal. Confederates justifiably argue the massacres are in response to Union atrocities in Missouri. Jesse is shot in the chest a second time, and shortly thereafter learns of Lee's surrender to Grant at Appomattox in April 1865. After four years of bloody fighting, though, he has no intention of surrendering. For Jesse James, this is not an end of his conflict. This is the end of someone else's conflict. Not Jesse James's conflict, not Frank James's conflict. Their conflict isn't over, it's still going on. Jesse James returns home to his deeply divided border state of Missouri. Here's Old West historian Jeff Morey and David Eisenbach. After the Civil War, the South was hellacious. It had been ruined. And there was a great deal of resentment uh, of Northern authority, of federal authority. Missouri is one of the states that stuck with the Union during the Civil War, but had large sectors of the population that wanted to go with the South in the first place. So you had Missourians fighting Missourians. It's in this incredibly volatile literally brother against brother world that we get Jesse James. Jesse discovers the war has not only torn apart his homeland, it's left his family with nothing. With Northern Reconstructionists in power across Missouri, Jesse and his brother Frank join forces with their cousins, the brothers Cole, Jim, and Bob Younger, who share their fierce hatred for Yankees. The Youngers also served under Quantrell and Bloody Bill and ended up losing their father and family home to the Union. Here's Old West historian Marcus Huff. The James and the Youngers had known each other well before the Civil War. Uh, they honed that relationship. They realized the potential they had as a fighting force. What do you reckon's next force? Jesse decides the best way to express his hatred for the North is to go after Northern wealth. They had to do something to strike back against federal authority and everything they saw as being 
oppressors in their lives. They looked at themselves as freedom fighters and tried to strike a blow for Southern manhood and Southern honor and Southern virtue. Having converted to the now worthless Confederate money, there's very little United States currency left in the South. Most of the money held in the banks is coming in from Reconstructionists investing in reunion. Jesse James' decision, therefore, to rob banks is as much political as it is criminal. Go. The gang's first heist is also the first daylight bank robbery in American history during peacetime. Everything in your vault. It occurs at 2 p.m. in Liberty, Missouri, on a cold, snowy day on February 13, 1866. The bank is owned by Republican former militia officers who recently conducted the first Republican Party rally in Clay County's history. The James Younger Gang hits the jackpot with a sum equal to nearly $900,000 in today's money. And the bank is now known as the Jesse James Bank Museum. Rob a bank, get it named for you. Four months later, in Jackson County, Missouri, the gang frees two jailed members of Quantrill's Raiders, killing the jailer in their effort. That revolver shot is somewhat of a release. Jesse refused to forget. A lot of his makeup was revenge. Come on, Jesse, we gotta go. Jesse, come on, come on! Get, boys, get! Now, the railroads are established by the Union during the war. And the, the railroad is a symbol of northern power and, and progress and a tool to rebuild the country and its wealth. The Pinkerton National Detective Agency, headquartered in Chicago, is hired to guard the cargo of railroads. For Jesse and Frank, the trains are a perfect target. The Pinkertons were essentially the first real detective agency, almost the precursor of an FBI. And their role was to essentially run down criminals. Boy, now put your back into it. Jesse's first train robbery comes in 1873 near Council Bluffs, Iowa. Jesse and company pull a rail out of place, and the train's engineer, John Rafferty, sees it move as the gang tugs on a rope attached to the rail. He immediately reverses the control lever. He saves the train but he and the locomotive flip off the track and he dies. Jesse and the boys get some 2,000 from the train safe, not the great haul they were expecting, and decide to rob the passengers also. Then waving their hats and shouting farewell, the boys gallop off. Evidently feeling bad about robbing the passengers. Ladies and gentlemen. In their next train robbery, the James gang examine the hands of each male passenger to determine whether he is a working man. According to a passenger, Jesse and the boys say they did not want to rob working men or ladies, but only the money and valuables of the plug hat gentleman. But the train robberies are bad for both the soft-handed businessmen and the callous-handed workers. The railroads do not want robbers stopping their train. They don't want robbers terrifying 
their passengers, it's bad for business. In fact, there was one railroad passenger who said, I don't care if it costs me $500, I'm not riding a train through Missouri. I'll go, I'll go around through Iowa or, or Minnesota or whatever, but I'm not going to take a train through the state of Missouri. And when we come back, more of the life of Jesse James. Our American Stories. We're listening to Levon Helm singing One More Shot from the 1980 country music concept album The Legend of Jesse James. We last left off with the James Younger Gang wreaking havoc on the train industry. Let's pick up from there. Here's Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. News of the James Brothers holdup spreads quickly. The robbery is a blow to the railroads and embarrasses the Pinkertons. Alan Pinkerton, their founder, who had been a spy for the Union during the Civil War, takes it personally upon himself to bring Jesse to justice. In Kansas City, the name Jesse James catches the eye of a former Confederate major turned newspaper editor who is trying mightily to inspire the Confederate wing of the Democratic Party to jump back into the fight. John Newman Edwards was probably the most hardcore of Confederates. And in his opinion, Southerners had been outlawed, disenfranchised by the North. Edwards is a bit of an alcoholic. He's disappointed. He is uh, an unrepentant rebel. And if there was ever a minister of propaganda for the Southern rebels, and the outlaws that followed the Civil War, it was John Newman Edwards. In the eyes of John Newman Edwards, Jesse James has achieved hero status. He continues writing about Jesse and those writing with him in a similar vein until his death in 1889. For Edwards and many other Southerners, this is not only about Jesse and other Confederate guerrillas, but about the lost cause of the Old South. Edwards, he wanted to see these downtrodden Confederates take their political future into their own hands. And he thought the James Gang would inspire them. And that's why he started writing positive reports. He made them the legends that they were. In Edwards' fanciful telling, Jesse's religious, kind to women, children, and animals, saves poor widows from foreclosure well, he is America's Robin Hood. Thanks to John Newman Edwards and the power of the press, Jesse James is no longer seen as a criminal, but as a folk hero for the South. Here's Jesse James scholar Kathy Jackson. If you're going to be an outlaw, what better way to escape the law and get people to help you than to have them believe that you are doing it for them? for a greater good. Jesse partners with Edwards and continues his robbing spree targeting Northern wealth. Newspaper readers across the country buy into the Robin Hood myth, but not the Pinkertons. 
Although Governor Silas Woodson issues a $2,000 reward for the James brothers, the biggest threat to Jesse's life comes from the private sector. Alan Pinkerton, who's made an art of reconnaissance and infiltration, sends his ambitious 26-year-old undercover agent, Joseph Witcher, into Clay County. First thing he did after getting off the train was to go to the sheriff, ask where the James or Samuel farm is. He told the sheriff who he was, what he was doing. Sheriff told him, do not go out there. Those boys will kill you. If they don't kill you, the old lady will. He didn't listen. He was later found the next day with four gunshot wounds in his chest and two in his head with a note pinned on his jacket that said, this is what happens to detectives who come looking for the James boys. Alan Pinkerton had never suffered a defeat like this. It became a personal vendetta for him, and he began to undertake the operation on his own expense. A month after murdering Pinkerton agent Witcher, Jesse marries his first cousin, Zerelda Z. Mims, named after Jesse's own mother. But it doesn't slow him down. Trains and banks continue to fall victim to his gang at a startling rate. Largest hauls are $30,000 from the Kansas Pacific Railroad and 10000 in cash and valuables from the Tishomingo Savings Bank in Corinth, Mississippi. On a January night in 1875, a Pinkerton raiding party suspecting Jesse is visiting home surrounds the James family farm. Pinkerton knew that the James boys would at some point come to that house. He had men ready, at least eight to 10. Whenever they learned that Jesse and Frank were at that farm, he was gonna send those men in. What are we waiting for? Alan Pinkerton plotted to bring about the demise of the James brothers. The Pinkertons threw a firebomb into the farmhouse in hopes of driving Jesse out. But the only ones home are Jesse's mother, stepfather, and nine-year-old half-brother, Archie. Reuben and Zerelda think it's a firebomb and sweep it into the fireplace. That turns it into an actual bomb. Firebomb explodes and kills Archie and mangles his mother's right hand so bad it is later amputated. The explosion is heard as far away as three miles. John Newman Edwards frames the story of the Pinkerton's raid as a direct attack on the South by a Northern enemy. No one is ever brought to trial for the murder of Jesse's half-brother, which again gives Jesse a reason to seek his own justice. If the law is not going to bring these guys to justice, then Jesse's going to do what he can. After the botched raid, Alan Pinkerton's detective agency is forced to back away from their more aggressive tactics. Jesse and Frank hide out in Nashville. In the summer, Z gives birth to Jesse's son, Jesse Edwards James. 1876 looks like it could be a banner year for Jesse. He opens his summer campaign with a $15,000 haul of cash 
from the Missouri Pacific Railroad. Then Bill Chadwell, a James gang member from Minnesota, suggests they rob what he thinks will be an easy mark in his home state, deep in Northern Territory. The suggestion is debated within the gang, but finally it's decided to head 400 miles north after Bob Younger informs the boys of a major depositor at First National Bank of Northfield, Minnesota. Here's Reconstructionist historian Eric Foner. You can rob a bank in Missouri. Why do you have to go hundreds of miles away to rob a bank? They got plenty of banks. Because he had heard that the Reconstruction governor of Mississippi, Adelbert Ames, had relatives up in Northfield, and a lot of his money was in this bank. And James decided, we're going to go up there, we're going to rob that bank to take the money of the Reconstruction governor of Mississippi. On September 7th, 1876, the James Younger Gang approaches the First National Bank of Northfield, Minnesota, just 45 miles south of Minneapolis. But with their long coats and impressive sidearms, the Missouri boys stand out among the mostly farming folk, many of them Swedish immigrants. Move! We intend to rob this here bank! Who's the cashier? You open that safe now. And you're listening to the story of Jesse James. And by the way, what a job Roger McGrath does on all of these. To hear more of what we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Sign up for our free newsletter. We'll send you our five best stories each week. That's ouramericannetwork.org. When we come back, the terrific final chapter in this remarkable story. This is Our American Stories. Levon Helm again. And what a singer, by the way. Let's continue where we last left off in this remarkable story of Jesse James. This is Our American Stories. The James Younger Gang have just entered the First National Bank of Northfield, Minnesota. Here's Roger McGrath with the finale. You open that safe now. The key to the success for the James Gang has always been speed, quickness. Joseph Lee Haywood, the cashier that day, delayed them. When Joe Haywood, the bank cashier and Civil War veteran, won't open the vault, Jesse James loses his temper and shoots him in the head. Clear the streets! Jesse's men are firing off their guns, telling people to get back. This is kind of shock and awe. Uh, in the middle of the street. But these people aren't being shocked, and they're not being awed. Townspeople are starting to fight back. 
They're coming to protect their bank. By now, ordinary citizens, butchers, bakers, barbers, hardware merchants, farmers, and nary a lawman among them, were grabbing guns and giving the outlaws what for. Wielding a rifle from the second floor of a hotel, college student and future physician Henry Wheeler fatally shoots gang member Clell Miller. It's pandemonium. The outlaws are firing revolvers, which are pretty inaccurate on horseback. The townspeople have shoulder guns. They're very accurate. These guys are getting shot to pieces on the street. It was a complete disaster for the James gang. And the only thing for them to do is to try to get out of town alive. Hardware merchant Ansel Manning blasts Bill Chadwall into eternity and then shoots Bob Younger's horse out from under him. Younger rolls free of his wounded mount and takes cover behind a staircase. The outlaws return fire, but bullets are coming at them from several directions. Some unarmed citizens throw rocks. After seven minutes of gunfighting, Jesse orders a retreat, and the gang splits up. Joseph Lee Haywood, the acting cashier that day, was a thorn in the side to the plans of these robbers. He delayed them. They don't get the money they come for. In fact, the safe was unlocked the whole time. Had they just tried that handle, it would have opened up and revealed about $15,000. The robbery is a complete failure. Now the Minnesotans want justice. More than a 1,000 grab their firearms and form posses and picket lines, triggering the largest manhunt in American history. There are at least a 1,000 men going after these guys. It was instant national news, especially when the James gang was associated with this robbery. Jesse and Frank were Southern boys and murderers. They were hated in Minnesota, and everyone wanted to see them captured and brought to justice. Jesse and Frank go one way, but the youngers are apprehended. This is the ill-fated moment in the career where what had been a successful gang has reached a dead end. Over the course of the next two weeks, all of the James gang are either captured or killed, except for Frank and Jesse. These guys were masters at concealing themselves and getting away. They had to do it all during the Civil War. They were always outnumbered. They always had people chasing them. Northfield was the biggest disaster the Jameses had experienced since the Civil War. They lost men that they had fought with. They both suffered gunshot wounds. But I think in a way, mentally in some way, they're wounded as well. Frank and Jesse ride a circuitous 500 miles back home to Missouri with just $26.70 to show for their efforts. Frank, he ultimately thought, the way this is going, it's gonna be a bullet or a noose for them. But Jesse, he was diehard. After losing every member of his gang, 
the most wanted man in America goes into hiding over the next several years. Jesse spends his time living under aliases as a family man, now with two children in Missouri, Kentucky, and Kansas. Stay in your seats, do not move. Then in 1879, with his spoils running low and his name out of the press, Jesse returns to action with a new James game and takes $6,000 from the Chicago and Alton Railroad. At this point, he's just finding somebody that can hold a gun and hold a horse and that hopefully is trustworthy. Jesse plans a job for April 4, 1882 in Platte City, Nebraska. A bank there is stuffed with cash and needs his attention. Two young and newly recruited gang members, Charles and Robert Ford, will go along. Charlie helped Jesse rob the Chicago and Alton Railroad, but Bob has yet to see any action. Jesse needs an extra man because he has uh, a bank robbery planned in Platte City. So he's willing to accept this young Bob Ford, who's Charlie's brother, because Jesse liked Charlie Ford, and, and I'm sure that Charlie vouched for Bob. They were not a ghost of what he'd had before, just common run-of-the-mill backcountry thieves and killers. You don't have the people who were trained, if you will, during the war. America's most wanted outlaw doesn't realize it. It's not the law he should be most afraid of, but his newest gang member, Bob Ford, who is secretly working for Missouri Governor Thomas Crittenden. The governor has posted a $10,000 bounty for Jesse, dead or alive, and Ford is determined to get it. Bob Ford was this media-saturated fan. There's no better way to get close to the object of your admiration than to join his gang, and maybe in some way become a little bit like him. That's the picture of Bob Ford that we have today. Before they leave for Platte City, Jesse and the Ford brothers meet for breakfast at Jesse's home. After enjoying a hearty meal prepared for them by Jesse's wife, C, they retire to the living room to discuss their upcoming job. When Jesse steps up on a chair to straighten a picture, Bob Ford quickly draws his revolver and shoots Jesse through the back of the head. He topples to the floor and dies. America's most notorious outlaw is 34 years old. Bob and Charlie Ford are convicted of murder and sentenced to be hanged. In a matter of days, though, they receive a full pardon from Governor Crittenden. Nonetheless, the same governor fails to reward them with the $10,000 bounty. You know, Jesse James is already a hero to many people. When he's killed, he's now a martyr. And it's the way that he's killed. Had he been captured and tried, and had he been executed, it would have been much different. But this is a collusion between the governor of a state and a gang member who shoots his leader in the back of the head. Two years later, 27-year-old Charlie Ford, suffering from tuberculosis and morphine addicted, shoots himself to death with his own gun. A decade later, Bob Ford, who wasn't celebrated as the hero he thought he should have been, is shot to death by Ed O'Kelly. 
Jesse reaches incredible new heights in the American imagination as a hero, as a martyr, and as a representative of the defeated South. I grew up in Jesse James country. When I was a kid, Jesse James was a hero. Now, I see Jesse as a tragic consequence of an awful, awful war, which was a tragic consequence of an awful, awful institution. Here's folk singer Almeida Riddle. I'm sure you've read of Frank and Jesse James. Well, my father's grandfather and their father was brothers. I never was ashamed that the James boys were my cousins, but neither was I proud of it. <laughs> Jesse James was a man who killed many men and robbed many express train. And the people all would say for many miles away they were robbed by Frank and Jesse James. Jesse had a wife to mourn for his life, and his children too were brave. But a dirty little coward they called Robert Howard laid Jesse James in his grave. And what storytelling. Great job, as always, by Greg. And my goodness, Roger McGrath, what a star. He's the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and listen to all that he's done, all that we do. We have over 800 hours of storytelling up there. You're on a long trip? Download it all. You can get us on iTunes, too. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Lee Habib, the story of Jesse James the story of the Civil War in a way in a divided country here on Our American Stories.